Welcome to another session of Prof. Ray's podcast. Today I'm responding to your reflections that you wrote regarding reading the Forbes August 2020 magazine article entitled Researchers Doubt That Certain Mental Disorders Are Disorders at All. I was quite impressed with your reflections and they ranged from discussions on ADHD to mental illness in general and there was a variety of content and including some skepticism about what the article said and some embracing what the article said and that's certainly the purpose of why i have you read some articles such as this give us some ideas give us some reflection and considerations i did want to make a few comments uh, because this is an important subject and i didn't want folks to walk away from reading this article thinking that mental illnesses are a figment of our imagination. Mental illnesses are real. The article wants us to think about how we view, understand, and respond to mental illnesses. Maybe they are not what we traditionally believe to be mental illnesses, and therefore we need to think outside the box. So while the conditions are real, what we call them, how we diagnose them, those may vary. And in module three, you'll be doing a little bit of digging deeper and looking at different ways that mental illness diagnoses are established, either through the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, known as the DSM, or through the ICD, which is the medical version of such and includes more than mental illness diagnosis, it includes all the health diagnoses, or more recently through what's called the research domain criteria. This particular one is the one that I seem to embrace the most at this point, having spent many, many years in the field of mental health. The reason for that is this one does, as the article suggests, it explores and wants to determine is this something that is chemically induced from the brain? Is this something that is simply a response to environment? And it's looking at all the different possibilities. So it's a much broader context. Let me address a few of the things that you were writing about in terms of specific diagnoses and kind of reflect on that a little bit. First of all, the ADHD diagnosis, that is the one that almost everybody responded to in terms of reading the article and having a reflection on it. It's one that's very common. Everybody in this day and age knows about ADHD. What I wanna say about ADHD is, again, it's a real condition. People have real challenges because of it. Now the question is, is it a mental illness or is it a normal response? So there's a lot of um, research and information out there about ADHD. And one of the framers of, of working with this has talked about ADHD goes back to our early days as a civilization. And basically we were a community where we had hunters and we had gatherers. Gatherers were like what we would call farmers. They worked with the crops, produced the crops and gleaned the, the the crops when they were fully grown. Hunters, on the other hand, were out, as the name implies, hunting. They were out in the woods looking for wild game. That could be a very dangerous spot, so they had to be very attentive to their environment. They had to be hyper vigilant. And so 
well, I don't want this to be a, a gender-based conversation. Traditionally, the hunters were male, and traditionally, way back, the gatherers were female. And interestingly enough, we see more ADHD uh, in males and we do females, though females can have it as well. But my point here is that maybe this is something that has evolved with us in the species, that some folks are more prone to being hypersensitive to their environment or hypervigilant to their environment. And now we call those folks as having ADHD. I'm just speculating and suggesting that's one way to look outside the box. But I don't want to deny that there does seem to be a medical component to ADHD. There are actual PET scans of the brain that show folks with having ADHD having a very different presentation in the brain than folks that don't have ADHD. The basic difference is the metabolic um, aspect when it comes to glucose absorption in the brain. So what I'm saying here is that there is science that shows us that ADHD is a real condition. Now, do we want to call that a mental illness? I'm not so sure that we do based on the thinking of Forbes magazine and others. Maybe it is a normal, natural condition that some people deal with, and then they need to, to learn ways to manage the symptoms. Medication may be needed because the thing about all these things we call mental illness Medication is, or should be, a replacement therapy. It's putting back what the body does not naturally produce. Take, for example, diabetes. If your body's not producing sufficient insulin, you're going to need to introduce more insulin into the body to be healthy and to function appropriately. So much can be said in the same way about these conditions, be it depression, be it ADHD, etc that sometimes there is a chemical imbalance and that needs to be regulated and medication may be needed. However, I also wanna say I conversely that we tend to wanna to medicate from the start. My professional opinion is that medication may be needed in lots of cases, but it's not the first thing we do. First, we try behavior management. First, we try changing the environment. First, we try other things. And then we may see some gain and maybe sufficient gain to help the person to function in a daily way that's uh, satisfying to them. But sometimes we won't see that. So then medication might be warranted. And so then a trial of medication could come into play. Uh, the, the thing the article said too was talking about recess. And that's the biggest thing, whether you have ADHD or not, sitting in a classroom all day is abnormal. It's not what we're wired for. And so to accommodate that, we need to build in some responses. We need to have opportunities for standing, stretching, movement, change of focus, those type of things. And so that's the best thing we can do for somebody that has ADHD in a school setting. But that can also apply to adults in the workplace. Uh, for example, myself. I can't sit all day in my office. I have to get up and wander the halls. For me, that's my recess, so to speak. So again, we need to look at the fact that ADHD and the other diagnoses we talk about are real conditions, but are they mental illness or are they something else? Which leads me to the next diagnosis I wanna talk about, which is depression. 
one of the most fascinating experiences I had was uh, teaching a class up at East Tennessee State University, a graduate level course. We were talking about the different diagnoses and as we got to depression, um, I was curious to know, we had two students who were from another country and it was uh, a situation where I was not familiar so much with mental health in that country. So I asked about them or asked them about it rather in terms of, okay, so depression, tell us a little bit about depression in your country as far as mental health diagnoses and such. And they kind of looked at each other and smiled. And then they looked at me and said, we don't have depression. And I looked at them and I thought, that is the strangest thing I ever heard. And I wasn't sure they were serious, but they were. But as we talked further, what they were telling me was in their country, the symptoms of what we would label as depression were so common in every day, it wasn't outside the norm. So there was no diagnosis of depression. It was the norm. And they didn't call it depression. They called it just coping with life. Uh, they were in a country that was very rigid politically and very oppressive in so many ways. So everybody was depressed. That was the norm. And when we look at diagnoses, basically what we're seeing is these are things that are supposed to be outside the norm, outside the everyday experience. So if your country, everybody is depressed, it's not outside the norm. So you wouldn't create a diagnosis for it. We're in our culture. Depression is common, yes, on different degrees and different levels, but it is not the norm. The majority of folks do not have to deal with depression on a regular basis in their life. So therefore, we've created this diagnosis of depression. So it's a very interesting point, I think, in terms of looking at this as the Forbes uh, magazine looks at it. Now, someone mentioned... Um, in terms of what the article is saying about not believing that diagnoses were inherited, such as depression, suicidal ideation, and such like that. I want to clarify here that while we might not say they're inherited, we do have the science that shows that there can be a predisposition. So, for example, with suicidal ideation, there is the science that can actually pinpoint the spot in the brain that is the part, part of the brain that just kind of facilitates and helps suicidal ideation to expand or grow. It's a, it's a marker that we can pinpoint in the brain. Some people have it, some don't. We also see that suicidal ideation tends to run in families. Now, granted, is it a learned behavior? We saw our other relatives respond to life stressors that way, or is it something biological? Actually, it's a little bit of both because, again, we can do this brain marker that pinpoints suicidal ideation sitting in the brain, so to speak. And so there's a predisposition. So if I have a predisposition and we can brain mark it in my brain, it doesn't mean I'm going to be suicidal or act on suicide. But it does mean that I probably am going to have more chance of having suicidal ideation than a person that doesn't have that. So maybe inherited isn't the word we want, but predisposition or something running in families. We also need to understand that depression has two sides to it. One is situational. Something happens. We break up with a significant other. We lose a job, whatever. Those are episodes that can cause us to get sad and depressed. That's situational depression. 
but there's another version of it, of depression, that's more of a biological type of depression. And this is where a chemical imbalance comes into play. Our frontal lobe is the regulatory process for things like depression, ADHD, anxiety, etc. And some people are lacking the chemicals that regulate the depression or anxiety, etc. So think about it this way. We all have these little chemicals in our brain that are shooting out depression or anxiety, but then we conversely have these little chemicals that are shooting out anti-depression, anti-anxiety, and that keeps us regulated and maybe not experiencing issues of depression or anxiety on any regular basis or to any depth. But some people, their fighter chemicals have shut down, so the others are throwing off and it contributes to the depression being more serious or worsening. So there is some chemical component that is potential in things like depression, anxiety, and the mental, uh, mental illnesses that we are exploring and looking at. But that's not to say that all anxiety, all depression is caused from something going wrong chemically in the brain. Much of it has to do with environment and coping skills. And that leads me to our next conversation about anxiety. We are an anxiety-ridden culture. Uh, if you want to read a good book, an author by the name of Gavin DeBecker wrote a book called Fearless. And he basically, he's not a, a scientist and he's not a psychologist or psychiatrist, uh, but he's exploring this thing called anxiety and the roots of that. And basically, if you look at our culture, over 50% of our population could be clinically diagnosed with anxiety. It's that serious and that bad. But so much of it is environmentally induced. For example, take the idea of um, you're driving down the road and somebody cuts you off and then we experience what's called road rage. We've read about it, seen clips about it. And yes, road rage does exist. However, we're led to believe that road rage is like at epidemic proportions. The reality is it's less than 1% of scenarios. But the media gets a lot of gain out of throwing those videos out there, throwing those headliners out there. Uh, and that induces fear and further anxiety, folks. If I get cut off, is that person going to shoot me? Or if I'm reverse that, if I cut somebody off, is that person going to then shoot me? We kind of think there's a good chance of that. Well, there's a chance. Anything can happen. But the chance is so slim, less than 1%. It's really not something that should be in the forefront of our mind. So a lot of it's induced culturally. A lot of anxiety has to do with just not having good coping skills, not having good ways to deal with the stressors that face us day to day. So there's a variety of things, environment, learned behavior, coping skills, and what we call resilience. All those factors determine how we handle anything that we have to confront, whether it's an episode of depression or something else. Big one I want to address is the PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. We're all very familiar with that term and have heard it, and we often think about it in terms of folks that have been in the military because it is very common with that. PTSD is a diagnosis in the Diagnostic and Statistics, yeah, Statistical Manual of Mental Illness Diagnoses. However, it doesn't belong there. PTSD is not a mental illness. 
PTSD is a normal response to an abnormal life circumstance. So being in combat is very abnormal. So PTSD as a result of that is a normal response. Being in an abusive relationship is abnormal. So having PTSD as a result of that is very normal. So again, as the article would have us think about, PTSD shouldn't be in the diagnostic manual, the DSM. It's a condition, yes. It's very frustrating and stressful, yes. It impacts individuals and those around them significantly, yes. But it's treatable, curable, so to speak, because it's not chemically induced as such. It's not a mental illness. It's a response to an abnormal life circumstance. One of the problems with the DSM is that, first of all, it's composed and created by the medical community, psychiatrists. If you think about the medical community, their basic training is you have a condition, you give a pill, you give medication. Now, again, medication can be very helpful. Medication can be necessary but maybe not the first step. So what we need to consider here is that these are the folks that create this manual. So they look at things from the point of view, is this a condition that medication can help? If it is, we're gonna put it in the, the DSM and maybe it doesn't belong there. So we need to look again outside the box at times. Medication can be necessary and warranted, but sometimes there's other things that are contributing to the issue that need to be looked at. Again, resilience, coping, support systems, uh, our understanding and appreciation for what we're dealing with and, and how we see it. One of the things that the DSM has to deal with too is the fact that it can be very political. Based on the culture of the day, it can determine what is considered mental illness and what is not. Case in point, when I started in the field, way back in the day. Our diagnostic manual was the DSM-3. We're now in DSM-5. They don't change every year or very frequently, but over time they have. So in the 70s, the DSM-3 was the, the uh, current one. At that time, there was a diagnosis of homosexuality. Now, if we look at the DSM-5, there is no diagnosis of homosexuality for several reasons. One, because we have a lot more learning about that and understand that it's not just something that somebody chooses. Rather, there does tend to be some genetic factors, some environmental factors, uh, those combinations that lead a person to identify in such a way. But we understand now it's not a mental illness. It's a normal thing, much like PTSD is normal. ADHD is normal, but yet, you know, we want to tend to put those as mental illness. And because of that, people have some of this old stigma when they see someone who identifies as gay that, you know, all oh, that's wrong, this, this, and that. And there's also religious situations that influence that. That's a whole nother podcast. Uh, but the bottom line is homosexuality is not a mental illness. And it's been removed from the DSM because we understand that. But part of the reason it finally got removed was because the culture changed, uh, politics changed. In the 70s, when it was a diagnosis, there was a very different understanding, uh, very limited understanding 
of homosexuality. But now there's a fuller understanding, plus we have some science to go with that understanding. The other thing about the whole situation of diagnoses, it's so driven by the pharmaceutical companies. Our culture, our world is driven by pharmaceuticals. We want to take a pill to get up and get going in the morning. We want to take a pill to go to sleep and rest at night. Our first line of response is always medication in our culture. That shouldn't be. Medication is sometimes warranted and can be helpful, but it shouldn't be the first step. We should try other things. Case in point, I want to back up to ADHD. Back in the day when I started my private practice, I specialized with ADHD and learning disabilities, learning challenges, as I prefer to call them. And what I found was after a thorough assessment process, not going to a doctor in 10 minutes deciding, oh, yeah, this kid has ADHD. I did a thorough assessment. And as a result of that, if there was a need to look at medication, I would then refer that individual back to their physician for medication purposes because I'm not a physician. What I found is so often the medication would be given and the parent in the school would say a 50% improvement overnight. And they were so happy and that's where it stopped. The parent didn't bring the child back to see me for the follow-up appointments I suggested for learning to manage the symptoms. Rather, they were so happy with a 50% gain, they thought that was total improvement. The reality was, if they had also learned some behavior interventions, some management skills, that child would be happier and could control the symptoms, and you might see an 80% or 90% gain, but they settled with the 50% because the medication helped that much. So my point here is, wouldn't it be better to reverse that? Start with the behavior management, start with learning to manage the symptoms and get maybe a 40 plus percent gain from that. And then if there's still significant challenge in daily functioning, that medication might be helpful. Look at adding the medication. But we always want to put, as the saying goes, the cart before the horse. We do it in reverse. We jump to the medication and leave it at that. And it's the same with depression. Medication may be warranted and it can be helpful, but there are things that can be done environmentally, behaviorally, that can make the improvement quicker or more long-lasting and can also thwart off future depressive episodes. So this was a great article to get us thinking, and I, I hope you'll continue to think about some of these things, and if it raised questions for you, that you'll explore those a little bit further. So these were just some top of my head uh, reflections and responses to the things I was reading that you put out there, which was very insightful uh, and very well done. So I hope this part is a little bit helpful to you too.